0: This is Morning Edition on NHPR. I'm Rick Ganley, and this is the New Hampshire News Recap. Certainly, the top story of the week is former President Donald Trump's indictment on charges related to the efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. He's also the front runner in the Republican presidential primary here in New Hampshire. NHPR's senior political reporter, Josh Rogers, and the Boston Globe's Stephen Porter. Join me now to discuss these stories. Good morning to you both good morning good morning so josh i'm gonna start with you tell us more about trump's position here in new hampshire compared to to the other gop candidates
1: well as you alluded to according to all the polling uh he's in a strong position uh if you average that polling he tends to stand at around 40 percent support that's more than twice the support of his nearest rival florida governor ron desantis uh, no other candidate right now in new hampshire is out of single digits uh which isn't to say voters aren't out there checking out other Republican candidates. But right now, Trump does have, by really any measure, a solid lead. And as I've been out trying to talk to Republican voters the last few days, uh, and you know these are obviously voters turning out to see Trump rivals, uh, many, if not most, will tell you they see the indictments the former president faces as being largely political.
0: So it's not changing opinions, really, at least not at this point. Um, what was the reaction from the actual Republican primary opponents themselves?
1: Uh, that kind of depends. I mean, Asa Hutchinson, uh, who called for Trump to uh, step out of this race a fully a year ago, you know, he reiterated that as he campaigned here. He's obviously a marginal figure uh, according to the polling. Uh, a candidate who seems to be gaining ground in New Hampshire and elsewhere. Uh, entrepreneur Vivek uh, Ramaswamy. He was in New Hampshire yesterday, and that was after traveling here uh, from. Uh, Washington, where he, you know, started his morning outside the courtroom where uh, Trump was being indicted, uh, and he's been the most strenuous in defending Trump. And it was interesting yesterday. He, uh, you know, he re-upped his commitment to pardon Trump should he, Ramaswamy, end up as president, and Trump ended up being charged. of some variables there. But you know, when he talked to voters at a, at a you know, he gave forty-five minutes worth of remarks in Milford. He didn't bring this up once when he talked to voters, and. Uh, no voter who asked questions, and he probably took five or six questions from voters, uh, asked him about it either. Uh, and after he got done talking to a, a media availability, reporters asked Ramaswamy about this, and you know he, he reiterated his pledge to pardon Trump, uh, but said that this was somewhat of a distraction from what voters wanted to hear and. Voters who were observing reporters asking him about this, some of them got a bit foul-humored about this um, for, for, you know, uh, what they saw as a, a, an unnatural focus on the media on the indictment of, of the former president. And you can make of that what you will, but, you know, the indictments do really define the Republican primary at the moment.
0: Yeah. Trump was in federal court yesterday, but he will be back here in New Hampshire next week as he continues his campaign. Stephen, what can we expect from that visit?
2: Yeah, so Trump will deliver remarks on Tuesday at Windham High School. Um, this is the same venue where he held a big rally in 2016 with 1,500 people. And I'm hearing from his supporters that they hope to really repeat that and find something similar this year, uh, kind of rally support around the former president. Uh, And if his remarks are anything like what he has said in New Hampshire in the past, for example, when he was here for the Lilac Luncheon earlier this summer, then he's going to lean into those indictments and claim that they are a badge of honor that uh, represent the fact that he's, uh, in his view, representing the uh, everyday Republican voter who uh, uh, cast a ballot for him.
0: And do we expect his remarks to just focus exclusively on that, or do you think there'll be other issues that he will bring up?
2: In the events that I have covered in the past where former President Trump has spoken, he has a tendency to meander from topic to topic. So I would be shocked if he sticks to just the one topic, um, but also shocked if he were uh, not to include the indictments as a significant piece of his messaging while he's here. So I would expect him to include that along with his uh, typical repertoire of topics.
0: Now, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wrapped up his latest visit to New Hampshire this week as he's campaigning for the Republican nomination. So, Josh, what's been his pitch to voters?
1: Well, what, what he said last week was in a lot of ways similar to the arguments uh, he's been making all along. This comes as he his campaign is, you know, what people tend to refer to as a reboot after financial problems. He had to shed a bunch of staff and it was like, OK, he's going to be relaunching more retail politicking. Uh, you know, more off-the-cuff remarks, Uh, but, you know, in substance, the pitch he made while he was here was pretty similar to what he's making all along, essentially, look what I've done in Florida on the economy, on education, on fighting wokeism, I follow through on my promises, former President Trump doesn't, Uh, that's a real thrust, Uh, he mentioned, you know, Trump's failure to fully build the so-called wall, uh, you know, locking Hillary Clinton up, you know, trimming the deficit. These are these are things uh DeSantis mentions. This visit four days uh long, uh you know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot that was new and not much that explicitly sought to reach out to voters who aren't pretty staunchly conservative. There was an economic speech where he did talk about, you know, the middle class and and you know at one point said he'd like to return the country to a place where a one you could support a household on a single income which would be something that i think would be popular um but outside of economic policy there really wasn't much that attempted to speak to independent voters and more moderate republicans who do make up a significant significant slug of the electorate here
0: and uh, steven what did you hear from desantis this week
2: well i covered that economic policy speech that governor desantis gave uh, at a business in rochester that josh mentioned and that's where he unveiled a ten-point economic agenda um, he really stuck to uh, the economic topic and uh, insisted that reporters stick to the topic as well. Um, he framed his plans as a declaration of economic independence uh, and said that he could achieve 3% annual economic growth uh, through priorities like you know low taxes and cutting red tape. Uh, And that sort of thing, Uh, even throughout that, he he wove some of the uh, themes that he's been been known for in terms of, um, you know, drawing the line between economic policy and social policy. Uh, He spoke, for example, about um, his opposition to corporate training programs on diversity, equity and inclusion uh, and also on combating environmental, social and governance criteria in investing One other point that uh, caught my attention about his economic speech was what he had to say about student loans. He reiterated his opposition to the idea of student loan forgiveness, but he also said that uh, such loans should be eligible for discharge through bankruptcy. Um, And he also argued that universities should be on the hook for the, the student loans that their pupils take out for their courses. And he argued that that would influence what course offerings universities have moving forward, and and he said that that would be part of kind of combating what he views as an ideological um, approach to higher education.
1: Yeah.
0: Now, some of his rhetoric during the, this visit, though, was was actually quite violent. I mean, Josh, how, how does that seem to be going over with local voters here who have been attending his campaign stops?
1: Well, uh, Ron DeSantis does endeavor to talk tough really across the board um, when he talks about his own political attributes uh, and uses aggressive language when he talks policy. One thing he mentioned when he campaigned here on Sunday, this was at a barbecue hosted by former Massachusetts Senator Scott Brown, was that on day one, uh, he would be lining up so-called deep state bureaucrats and slitting throats. Uh, He also talked about you know, taking action on the border to shoot uh, drug smugglers stone-cold dead. Um, You know, when Stephen mentioned the uh, ESG investing, at that speech, uh, DeSantis talked about in Florida how he had kneecapped that uh, that ESG investing. And so – you know, these are this is language, but it is striking. Um, You know, I I did I did write about uh, the throat slitting bit, and I did talk to some voters and, you know, some of them said, you know, this would not be a turn of phrase I would use. It is obviously figurative language. Um, You know, we are talking about people ultimately, um, but it it, it, it is it is striking. But it, it is also interesting that it didn't it didn't It didn't really catch the ear of too many people at the at the event. Uh, The reporting I did was Mm -hmm. picked up by lots of other people. But, you know, it really sort of is of a piece with uh, DeSantis' rhetoric overall. Um,
0: Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know,
1: I, I wouldn't expect it to necessarily stop.
0: And possibly a sign of the times. Now, Stephen, you reported on a series of new political ads appearing in New Hampshire this week targeting both Donald Trump and Joe Biden. What's their message? So the message of
2: these political ads um, caught my eye because they are a bit different. They're not just, um, you know, supporting or opposing one candidate. These ads are actually opposing both um, incumbent President Biden and also former President Donald Trump um, with one message that says, you know, we shouldn't reelect Biden, but we also shouldn't re uh, renominate Trump for the GOP nomination. So that's that's the crux of their message. Uh, they they highlighted. Um, concerns about the economy under uh, President Biden, uh, but also said that uh, Donald Trump is somebody who would set Republicans up for another loss in um, um, November of 2024. So that that's the gist of their message.
0: Who's paying for the ads?
2: This is from the Americans for Prosperity Action Group. This is a Conservative libertarian group that um, has uh, workers dispatched on the ground in early voting states to get a sense for Republican voters are and what issues they care about um, ahead of the 2024 race.
0: And they're not they They are not supporting any candidate primary uh, in the primary at the moment. Right.
2: Not yet. So they have signaled that they have plans to endorse a a Republican presidential candidate other than Donald Trump for the 2024 primary, but they have not yet picked a horse. So we are waiting to see um, who they're going to throw their weight behind uh, in this particular race. So we'll
0: see. Are they spending a a, a significant amount of money here and in other states?
2: They are. So this particular ad campaign is a million dollar ad buy, but only about $140,000 of that is in New Hampshire. The rest is in the other three early voting states for um, Iowa, Nevada and South Carolina.
0: Now, that could probably go fairly far, though, in a small media market like this.
2: Indeed, it could.
0: Yeah. In other news this week, there was a, a new study by Dante Scala, a political scientist at UNH, exploring whether state representatives still possess strong ties in their local communities. This caught our eye here at the station. Josh, tell us more about that.
1: Well, what this study aimed to do is to quantify if lawmakers elected now as a whole at the State House um, have a different sort of background in terms of. Public service, either in local political office or civic service, and as as volunteers, community involvement, uh, ties to the two political parties, that sort of thing, um, and the the aim is to get at the question: Is has the New Hampshire House, which is you know obviously kind of uber parochial, local politics oriented sort of political body, volunteer legislature, become more of a microcosm of national politics? Uh, due to its membership. And over the last 20 years, what Scala and uh, the students who helped him research that found is that many lawmakers here still do have the civic resumes, select board service, library trustee, alderman, etc., that you might expect, but that the numbers are dropping a bit, particularly when it comes to, you know, perhaps volunteer work in the community. Yeah. And, and
0: I mean, have you observed this anecdotally in the State House, Josh? You've been, you've been covering this for yes, a while. Yes.
1: This, this is this is one reason I'm interested in this paper is that it by and large, yes. And I guess I will say that I might have presumed, as scholars seem to do in carrying out this research, that the changes in the House's makeup might be a bit more dramatic on this front than they seem to be. But the thrust of this paper uh, is that the House could be kind of at a crossroads in terms of the sort of backgrounds of its members. I think that's valid. And I also agree with him that taking a close look at how political parties and advocacy groups go about recruiting people to run for the volunteer legislature is something worth keeping an eye on, as well as how, you know, those efforts and the backgrounds of lawmakers may shape how they act and what sort of bills get passed.
0: NHPR's senior political reporter, Josh Rogers. Josh, thank you. You're welcome. And Stephen Porter, reporter for the Boston Globe. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you. You can find all the stories we talked about and more at nhpr.org and bostonglobe.com slash New Hampshire. I'm Rick Anley. This is NHPR.